is we had spent some time, we're, we're in a series in Romans, and um, we're currently uh, back in, in earlier chapters, but I had kind of taken a break from that um, in actually in September of this year uh, because of um, our school ver theme verses this year are from Romans 15, and so I had kind of been unpacking that for our school and spoke on that several times uh, at school for different events. So we had looked at um, Romans 15, and we kind of looked at the first few verses, and then and when we talked about that, we talked about the strong bearing the infirmities of the week. So hopefully you'll remember that. It's been a little while back since September, but we, if you remember what we did, we went back into Romans 14 and kind of showed that that was really the context of that whole chapter was this discussion about how those who are strong ought to treat those that are weak, those who even get wrapped up in legalism and things like that. There's a certain way that we ought to treat them. And um, then we also looked at Romans 15, 4, which talks about the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God. So how do we know what things are indifferent and what things are not indifferent? Well, you have to study the Word of God. He said these things were written for our learning. So we have to go back to the Word of God where he says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope so how do we have patience with those well we go to the scriptures and if it's a matter that's indifferent we really ought to have patience with those people and that's a that's a really hard lesson to learn so you know just to give a couple of examples you know what's an example of something that's not something that's indifferent well what does the bible say about murdering other people i'll just go to an extreme example to make the point I mean, do you think that you could make a case that the Bible's okay with you murdering other people? Well, no, you know, because it, it says it multiple times, right? We don't have to say, well, there's this one verse way back in Leviticus in an obscure chapter where I feel like that the Bible said no. I mean, the Bible's very plain on that issue. So, you know, of course I use the extreme to make the point. But then there's a lot of indifferent things. So just a couple examples of indifferent things would be, uh, there's a lot of different good Christian people, even good Christian ministers who have differing opinions on eschatology. So what, what's going to happen in the end times? Well, there's, the Bible is not just forthright, crystal clear. This is exactly how it's going to happen, and you have to interpret it this way. I think there are legitimate different ways of looking at that. Everybody's going to have their opinions. They're going to interpret it their way. But there's a lot of issues like that. Um, that, that are indifferent issues that you just can't prove uh, one way or another in the Bible. And so on those issues, we need to be really careful about how we treat one another when they have a differing opinion than us. And we don't need to bash people over the head with our opinion. And just to be completely honest about it, um, sometimes, especially among Calvinist people, among those who believe the doctrines of grace, we have a reputation for that for bashing people over the head uh, with uh, what we believe. And on, on things that are 100% true, even those things, I think Paul says, we gotta be careful how we do it. So even if it's not an indifferent matter, uh, we should have grace and mercy and we should try to be peaceful as much as we can uh, with Christians that are around us. So that kind of sums up the beginning of chapter 15. I'm gonna go back and read uh, chapter 15, 1 through 7, and we're going to primarily look at verses 5 through 7 today and talk about unity. So the title of the message is A Prayer for Unity. 
a prayer for unity. And it comes from verses 5 through 7. And we're going to begin in verse 1 in our reading. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So Paul has brought up this huge topic that is absolutely very difficult and I hope that came across in the previous messages I know it's been a while since we looked at that but I hope that came across when Paul says that you need to treat these people um, that have these indifferent um, opinions that are different than yours that you should treat them in a certain way that's easy to say very hard to put into practice you know you may have some convictions about something that are pretty strong but it just happens to be an indifferent matter and the other person may have a different view. Well, here, here's what you can't do. You can't get up and say, well, without a doubt, the Bible says this, and if anybody tells you otherwise, they're wrong. Well, no, <laughs> that's not true. So be, be very careful about that. Well, it sounds easy to say that, but when our emotions are involved and when we really feel a certain way and somebody goes against that, it's going to be extremely difficult for us to have the mind of Christ, and to have unity among ourselves when those things come up. So as Paul gets to the end of this, he reminds us about Scripture, and then the very next thing he does in verse 5 is he begins this prayer. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one towards another according to Christ Jesus. So what he is saying there in our first point um, this morning is that unity depends on divine power. So point number one, unity depends on divine power. So just to sum up and, and make the whole point before I even start to unpack it, this is what Paul means by that, okay? He's, he's saying this, you in your own natural being and apart from the grace of God in your life, you're not going to be able to do this. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit, this type of unity that he's talking about that we can uh, coexist and, and actually even get along very well with people who we have differences with is a work of the Spirit in His people. So unity defends, depends on divine power. If we're going to look at Christ and if we're going to know the things of Christ, and this just we're going to zoom out for a minute from our specific topic and just look at the bigger picture. If we're going to see Christ, if we're going to see the kingdom of God, if we're going to understand Scripture in a saving way, you can understand Scripture in an unsaving way, by the way. Did you know that? There's theology professors that can study the, the text itself, and they can, they can do wonders with it, and they know the languages and all of that stuff. But to understand it in a saving way, God must work on your heart and give you spiritual life where there is no life. That's the principle that we're going to then apply in this situation. So unity depends on divine 
power. If we're going to understand the word of God that he mentioned in verse 4, he said, for all these things were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. For that to be effectual in your life, the Holy Spirit has to reveal scripture to you, or you won't understand it in a saving way. So if we're going to even understand the word of God, he has to incline our hearts to that. Let's go to Psalm 119 and verse 36 in the Old Testament. Psalm 119 and verse 36. He says, Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. So there's a work that God does that he inclines our hearts towards his word so that we understand what it says. Uh, without that, uh, we would not understand spiritual things. Of course, we could go to Corinthians to show that. We could go many different places and show that without the Holy Spirit working in our life, we wouldn't understand Scripture and we wouldn't be able to see who Christ is. So God must give us that through His Word. And if we're going to have a hope that sustains our love, then God must make it abound through the Holy Spirit. That's in our same chapter there in verse 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy. This is Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So see, Paul keeps going back to that all through this chapter that if you're going to accomplish these things, if these things are going to be real in your life, it's because the Holy Spirit is going to work in your life. It's through the power of of the Holy Spirit. So when that does take place, when the Holy Spirit empowers, what results should we expect? Well, that's what we get in verses 5 and 6 of our text. Now, the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. That's one of the results. Like-minded one toward another that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be like-minded doesn't necessarily mean that we agree on everything. That is extremely important. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down, you need to underline it, and you need to highlight it. Because this is what most people's view of unity is, is that we all have the same opinions. So that means we're unified, and that means we're speaking with one mind and one voice, and, and we, are, we are in unity because we don't have any disagreements and we all think the same thing about everything. That's what people view. That's kind of the simple view of what unity is and being like-minded is. Um, like-minded mean, doesn't mean that we're all going to have exactly uh, the same opinions. That, and to be honest with you, that's not ever going to happen as long as we live in a sin-cursed earth. It's just not going to happen. Now, there will be a day, and I look really, I'm really looking forward to this. There is going to be a day... In the future, when we will all be perfectly of one mind and one voice and one opinion, and all of those things are going to be settled, and I'm really looking forward to that. Now, Brother Tim Cannon and I had a little small disagreement about this. It's hilarious we have a disagreement about like-mindedness. But, <laughs> but, you know, he said, well, I think when we get to heaven, all through eternity, those things are just going to be revealed to us in succession, and we're just going to learn more and more and more about who God is. And I said, no, 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 no. I don't like that. I think we're just going to know. We're going to get there, and everybody's going to know, and we're all going to be the same. Does that really matter? Probably not, but I think we're just going to know it. You know, I think there's going to be that day when all those things are revealed, and the truth is just evident, 
And so all the doctrinal differences that God's people have, which, by the way, let me be crystal clear on this. Did you know that it's not only primitive Baptists that are going to be in heaven? Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know that there's going to be Arminians in heaven? There's going to be Church of Christ in heaven? There's going to be a lot of people who believe vastly different about the Scriptures than we do that I believe are God's children, and they're going to be in heaven. But now one day, we're going to know. <laughs> we're going to know. What was it? What, what, what did Romans 8 really mean? What did Romans 9 really mean? Is election really a, a doctrine that's true? One day, all of those things are going to be known. But in the meantime, he says that we still should be like-minded. So that doesn't mean that we agree on everything, because that will never happen as long as we live in a sin-cursed world and we have our old natures. But what it does mean is that we live in harmony with each other, and that's possible even through disagreement. That's what the Bible teaches, that it's possible for us to live in harmony and to have unity even in the midst of some uh, disagreements and some difference mind about different things. Uh, and that's, that's a reasonable thing for us to understand. If, if I'm living to please you more than myself and you're living to please me more than yourself, then what are we going to have to fight about? <laughs> you know, then some of our opinions are going to be set to the side. Isn't that what it means to not put self first? Well, I have an opinion and you have an opinion. I'm going to, I'm going to be willing to set aside my opinion so that we can get along. And you're going to be willing to set aside your opinion so that we can get along. Um, and once again, that is so easy to say and so, so difficult to put into practice. So we'll enjoy harmony between us when we're willing uh, to reach that, that unity even in the midst of disagreement. If I'm reaching out to you and you're reaching out to me with warmth and acceptance as Paul is, is praying for us to do in this chapter and, and in the previous chapter, then we're going to get along with each other even when we don't agree on everything. And that's a, that's a powerful truth. Um, that's true even in some of our interpersonal relationships. Um, I hate to tell the young folks this that are not married yet, but you're not going to agree with your spouse on everything. Did you know that? <laughs> and you better learn how to set some things aside and be willing to uh, please the other person more than yourself, right? And everybody who's married right now is doing this. They're going, yep, that's right, you're right. Um, it is, it's just kind of a microcosm of what we're saying in the, the bigger picture. And that's true of many other interpersonal relationships, not just in marriage. But that's ever and always our goal and we're always moving towards that goal of being willing to set those things aside. So Paul prays that God grant them to be like-minded. And he says that he is the God of patience and consolation. So there in verse 5, now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded. So we've talked about what it means to be like-minded a little bit. Well, this is the part that makes that dependent on divine power. The God of, and he uses two words, uh, the God who teaches you patience because he is the source of patience and the God who teaches you encouragement or cons that word consolation really there means encouragement because he's the source of encouragement. May he grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. And so what he's saying here is, is that... Um, I realize that you have to do this in the power of God. Paul is saying that I'm praying this for you because I realize that in your own strength, you're not going to be able to do what I'm asking you to do. 
Uh, you're going to have to lean on the power of God, and you're going to have to have the power of God on your life. I want God to grant this to you. If you grant something to someone, what is that? Has anybody ever written a grant? You know, education people love grants because what you do is you write this proposal up and you send it in, and then the government gives you money to do something. So it gives you something. Well, a grant means Paul is recognizing that for this to be fulfilled in the church, God is going to have to supply that to his people, the power to do that. So may God grant you this because you can't do it on your own. So if the, the prior thing, uh, the prior points that we made in previous messages about uh, verse 4 about the word of God and about studying the word of God, and this is its companion because we study the word of God and then God empowers us to carry it out, right? So you can't obey God in your own strength. In fact, in your own strength, you would do exactly the opposite. You would be inclined to do those things which God says are wrong. So we seek the strength of God rather than human resources. We depend on God. Now, just in a very practical way, I want to unpack that for just a minute. What does that mean? So does that mean that there's not anything that we do about it? We just say, Lord, I'm not going to like study about this. I'm not going to try to uh, go to counseling with somebody over this. I'm just going to depend for you to just from heaven strike me with a lightning bolt and there's unity. That's not what it means at all. What it means is that God works in you and he works in those around you and he gives you power, but he expects you to then obey that. That's the whole point of this passage is what Paul's telling them is God can empower you to do this. You need to obey. You need to seek unity. You need to use the power that God is giving you to have unity. So how are we going to be what we ought to be to a weaker brother or sister? That's, that's really zeroing in on the exact meaning of this text. So how are we going to build the unity of the church when we have people who have legalistic opinions or opinions that are different than ours? How are we going to bear one another's burdens uh, when we have these differences among us? How are we going to please one another, which is what the Bible says we should do? Well, by consideration of others, disregard for self and conformity to Christ, submission to Scripture, dependence on divine power. So all of those that I just listed, we've already talked about up until that last one. Dependence on divine power. So Paul will not leave that off. He says all those other things are true. Uh, submission to Scripture, conformity to Christ, disregard of self, consideration of others, all of those things he's talked about in chapter 14 and 15 but now he's saying all of that is dependent on divine power. <coughs> so if we depend on human resources, we'll be impatient. If we depend on human resources, we're going to find ourselves too weak for the task. And so in prayer, we depend on God. And that is Paul's prayer for, for not only the people here, but also for all Christians. The God of endurance, the God of encouragement will allow us to endure uh, and, and seek out unity, and he will encourage us in that process. So may he grant you to be like-minded one toward another. That is to say, just to treat everyone the same, to be considerate of others, to literally, it says, to mind the same thing among one another, to be concerned about each other. So that's a, that's a high task, uh, to really... If you think about that wording, it says to mind the same thing among one another. That is, that's difficult. Now, I think one of the keys to this, before we move on uh, to our second point, is that 
uh, when he says to mine the same thing, when we start focusing on minors instead of majors, unity is going to be extremely difficult. Do you know that? When, when a church gets off into the weeds about whatever the topic might be, uh, you get off in the weeds, you're going to have a real hard time keeping unity. But when we keep the main thing the main thing, I love that quote. Um, the, I think that came from the FedEx chairman. He said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? <laughs> well, for a church, it ought to be the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel. You know, I, I, listen, I love our doctrine. I love our doctrine. Um, I believe our doctrine not because I grew up in the Primitive Baptist Church. I love our doctrine because I studied the Bible, uh, and especially when I got in, in upper high school and in college, God convicted me that I, I'm going to find out whether this is really true or not. I mean, it just really hit me. It's like, you know what? I just don't, I just don't want to believe somebody else because that's the way they taught me or that's the way they told me. I want to find out if this is true or not. And I think that's what God used to call me to preach, actually. Uh, and I got in the Bible and started digging in. I said, you know what? It's right. This is right. This is the, these are the doctrines that are true. And, and so I'm not, I'm not putting that down at all. But, but folks, if our church is here because of election, then we've got a problem. We've got a problem. We're not a church that's here because of the doctrine of election. We're not here a, a church here because we believe in the practice of foot washing in a literal way. If that's what we want to be known as, then don't sign me up. I'm just going to be honest, okay? Don't sign me up. I don't want to be known as, as just we're foot washers. I want to be known as a church that believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came to save sinners of whom I am chief. You know what Paul said? He said, that's the only thing I want to be known for. You want, you want to talk about what Paul said? Paul, I preached the gospel to you. Jesus crucified and resurrected. He said, I knew nothing else among you, right? Isn't that what Paul said? That, that is what we focus on and when we keep the main thing the main thing unity is much more easier to maintain so so he says make sure that you stay on the majors now secondly uh, he says of one mind and one mouth let's go back to our text now the god of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to christ jesus now here's the high standard that ye may with one mind and one mouth Glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that ye may with one mind and one mouth. So this is the end for which the above request is made. Paul says, this is the results that I'm praying for among you. This is what I want the end result to be um, and shows that um, just having affection for one another and, and be, you know, that's one level, but being of one mouth and one mind to really be worshiping God in, as one, joining together in acts of religious service, both praying and praising him, our singing that we do, uh, the way we come together around the word of God when there's preaching, and all of those things for us to be of one mind and one mouth is a very, very high standard. So the point is this, God is the God who is the, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, we got to get that straight. I think it's not a coincidence that Paul said this. He said, I want to make sure that everybody knows who I'm talking about. That, you, that with one mind and one mouth, you glorify God. And then he has this phrase on the end, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anybody worships, worships a God 
that is a different God than the God that can be described as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then that God is not God. Okay? So in this world today, we need to repeat that over and over and over. You've heard me say it. You've heard Brother Nathan say it. I'm sure you've heard Brother Jeff say it too, but I know you've heard me and Brother Nathan say it over and over and over for many, many years at this church. There's a, a strong push in the world today of relativism to say that, well, there's a lot of different ways to get to God and people have different understandings. There's not a lot of different ways to get to God. Okay, that's a falsehood. So if anybody tells you that, you say, no, that's not true. There's one way to the Father, and that is through his Son, Jesus Christ. And so even in this context, Paul is saying that the person that I'm talking about is God who is the Father of Jesus Christ the true and living God, the Trinity. That is who God, that, that's the God that Paul is talking about. God and Christ are one. You cannot separate the two. The only true God is the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's how man comes to God. There is no other way. Jesus, Jesus said that. There's no other way but by me. There's no worship of God unless there is also worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you're worshiping God, but you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then I hate to tell you this, but you're not worshiping God. God does not accept that as worship. And so he says, the purpose of all of this, of your unity and all the things that I'm saying, is so that with one mind, that's internally, and one mouth, that's externally, that you glorify the true God, the God who is one with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as, as he talks about this unity, one mind, one mouth, I think this one, I'm not saying this never happens. I think it does happen. Paul would not pray for it if it wasn't possible. Uh, I think it is possible, but it's, it's a pretty high standard. To be of one mind and one mouth means, like I said, both internally and externally, we're on the same page. Now, like I said, that doesn't mean that we agree on everything, but in, in our worship and in the way we're carrying things out, there's unity, and, and, and we are, it might as well be the same person speaking. It might as well be the same person thinking. That is a very high standard of unity. But Paul says that it's possible uh, because he prays for it for them, and he says that with one mind and one mouth you may glorify God. So what is the point of our unity? I think that's really important of this point. Why is it important that we have unity? Is it so we can all get along? I think that's a side issue. I think that's a good side issue. But why does Paul say that it's important? Because it brings glory to God. That with one mind and one mouth, you may glorify God. When a church is all in different places and going all different directions and, and there's no unity, that is not glorifying to God. It's the exact opposite of that. So Paul says, if you want to show glory to God, you're going to speak with one mind and one mouth. So that ought to be our goal. We ought to speak with one mind and one mouth. Now, moving on to our third point. In, in verse 7, he says this, Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So receive ye one another, even as Christ also received us to the glory of God. What do we end the last verse with? It's all about the glory of God, right? So summing it up in verse 7, wherefore or consequently receive one another as Christ also received us. Why? What's the reason? To the glory of God. So he says, did Christ receive you? 
That's another way you could say this same text. Did Christ receive you? Were you receivable? Let me ask it that way. Have you ever thought about it that way? Were you very receivable when Christ received you? So he says, as Christ received you, you receive others. He received us to the glory of God, and we receive each other to the glory of God. So shall we not follow his example? So what are the right attitudes if the strong and the weak are to please one another? Once again, that's our immediate context in this passage. If you're, if you're able to have unity in the church and unity among uh, the assembly, then how is that going to work? What are the right attitudes that we should have if we're going to please one another? If we're going to bring glory to God, as Paul says here, by receiving one another. What are the mindsets and the attitudes that one must have to be able to practically carry that out in the church? Well, consideration of others, disregard for self, conformity to Christ, submission to Scripture, dependence on divine power, and a consuming desire to glorify God. See, I just added one to the list. So the last thing that Paul says is what's going to bring unity is that you have a very strong desire to bring glory to God, even a stronger desire for that than you do to uphold the rightness of your opinion. Now, that's difficult. Okay, so instead, and this is basically, let me sum that up in a very practical way. He's saying you have a strong opinion about something. It's an indifferent matter. The reason why you're willing to set that aside and have unity is because you want to bring glory to God. If you can have that mindset, then a lot of other things become much less important. Um, in fact, they're not very important at all when you compare them to bringing glory to God. So that's what the right attitudes are to have. Those are essential if we're going to manifest and live out and enjoy and glorify God by the type of unity that Paul's talking about in this text. That's his concern. So let's, let's bring that right down to the, the church level. One of the groups that it's hard to balance sometimes in the church is, did you know that, that some, some churches have a lot of old people and a lot of young people? <laughs> and a lot of times, the older people don't have the same mindset and opinions and style and even manner of speech that the young people have. And, and that goes both ways. So, so let me describe both sides. See, the older people, they're always looking at the younger people and saying, oh, my goodness, those young people. You know, do you see what they wear to church? Do you hear how they talk? Do you hear this? They're just, I mean, my good, they're not like we were when they were their age. You know, that's, you hear a lot of that. Then the young people, we're not going to let them off the hook either. Well, all the old people in the church, they just don't want us to have any fun. They're a bunch of old fogies. You know, they're, they're killjoys. They, you know, they just, they don't understand the new generation. They don't, so, so there's tension, right? Um, that's just one example. But I, I think it's a real example. Well, here's what Paul's saying. Young folks, you're to receive warmly the old folks. You're to be willing to set some things aside, maybe that, that your opinions about things or, or your differences that you have because of the age difference. You're to set those things aside and you're to receive them warmly. And old folks are to receive warmly the younger folks with their strangeness and their different vocabulary. You know, with me being in education... I get a lesson on this about every few years. You know, they'll start saying something. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? And I'll have to go up to a kid in the hallway and say, come here. Mm -hmm. Everybody's saying that. What does that mean? 
I don't even know what that means. And, you know, they'll have to explain it to me. We all know, you know, those differences and how things change. It is interesting, too, how all these things come around in circles, don't they? It's amazing how, you know, what, what was popular in the 60s, it'll come back around 30 years later, and then it'll go away for a while, and then it'll come back. But through all of those differences, now look, here, here's the difficult part. If an older person in the church, if somebody's really dressing immodestly in the church, is that what I'm talking about? No. The Bible's pretty clear on that, right? We're to have modesty. So we're not talking about, hey, there's just no rules and we should all just get along. That's not the example either. But if it's just a matter of indifference, if you just don't like the color of their clothing, you know, maybe they're wearing neon, you know, colors all the time because that's the fad and you say, oh my goodness, you shouldn't wear that to church. Those colors are too bright. Um, well, give them the Bible verse that says, hey, do not wear bright clothing in my house. Um, that's not going to happen. But can I go to a text and show you that you should dress modestly? Absolutely, I can. So just to get real practical, that's the kinds of differences that we're talking about. And that's the kind of disagreements that can come up. And believe it or not, it can cause real problems. Most church problems and church splits and, and major problems that churches have, it's usually not over major things. It usually starts with minor things. Sometimes it turns into major things. But a lot of times it starts with very minor issues and minor things. So that's what we should guard against. Another difference. We talked about young and old. What about traditional versus non-traditional? That's a big one. That's a real big one. So traditional versus non-traditional. Now, among the primitive Baptists, I think that's actually a bigger problem than we recognize probably, but it's not probably as crystal clear on the surface as it is in other denominations. Some denominations even have two services on Sunday morning, and what do they call one? The traditional service, and then they have the contemporary service, right? So it just depends on which one you want to go to. And if you're a contemporary person, you go to this one. If you're a traditional person, you go to this one. You like the piano and organ? Go to this one. You want the praise and worship music? You go to this one. Well, they're all in the same church. So can they, can they accept that? Can they say there's those differences and, and we're okay with that and, and we're going to move forward together because we think both of these things are okay? Uh, like I said, now I think in the Primitive Baptist, those differences are a little, they're not maybe quite so on the surface. I don't know of any Primitive Baptist churches that have two Sunday morning services, period. Um, wouldn't that be a great thing, though? Wouldn't it be? If you had so many people that you had to have two services or build a bigger building or, you know, whatever the case might be, um, I'll never forget this. I actually got in trouble with some people. But I was a pastor at a particular church, and um, I said, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if God grew this place and we had to build a new building? I mean, I got in trouble for that one. Do you know who built this building and who put the bricks in? It was Brother So-and-So back in 1950-something-something-something, and he laid every brick, and I would never leave this building. You'd have to drag me out. You know, I thought, and I mean, my only answer was this. What's more important, the building or Christ? Is Christ honored? If, we, if, if God did a work in this church and he grew it to 300 people, we can't fit in here. What are you going to do? I'm staying here. I said, wow. You know, our priorities are not right at that point, are they? They're not right. So traditional versus non-traditional, and, and that can really come down to things like that, like, you know, value in the building, even a name, uh, even uh, just a certain way of doing things. Uh, if, if we were to come in one Sunday morning and... One of us preachers said, okay, we're going to do things a little different today. We're going to get up and preach, and then we're going to have singing after that. What would you do? Would you get up and leave? Would it matter? Does the Bible say thou shalt sing first, and the preaching shall come second, and then you have you know, a song to end, and you have to have a right hand of fellowship? 
That's primitive Baptist, right? You gotta have a right hand of fellowship. We we've never done that at our church, and it kind of just was an accident. We just we were meeting in a community center for a while. We were meeting in homes, so we didn't do that a lot. But there's nothing wrong with that. Those are traditional versus non-traditional viewpoints. And so those things we have to be able to look past. And like like Paul said, the things that are indifferent, we gotta let them be indifferent. We can have our differences of opinion, and we will have them. Nothing can change that, but we need to respect one another's opinions even when we disagree and keep the main thing the main thing. That's not whether you're traditional or untraditional. Um, we need to let one another know that people and relationships are more important than us than our cherished opinions. That one steps on toes, right? People and relationships are more important than our cherished opinions. So if, if your opinion is such that it offends people and it's just an opinion, it's not something that's scriptural, what, what is the Bible, what is Paul saying you should do about that? That means you should probably keep that to yourself and not make it an issue. Um, doesn't mean you have to change your opinion, but you don't rub it in their face. You don't bring it up over and over. I know he disagrees with me. I'm just going to keep on. I'm going to just keep on until I change his mind. That is not scriptural. And if you have that attitude, then you're not putting them before yourself uh, and, and that is exactly what Paul is, is talking about in this scripture. So let's go to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to close here. Because this unpacks a little bit exactly what Paul is talking about in this text. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, if they're... Be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others." Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it's hard to stop there. It's really hard for me to stop there because that, that passage is probably one of my favorite in the whole Bible. It's a Christology, especially from that point forward, that Paul writes about the mind that was in Christ and why we are to let that mind be in us. But we're going to stop there because of our, our topic this morning. I also want to take a little side note here real quick. This, this is not, um, this is a freebie, and it is a side, side note, but this is just really interesting to me. Two of the pastors that I work with every day, uh, one of them's a Bible teacher, and, and the other one uh, is a math teacher who's also a, a former pastor. He was preparing a message, and, and he saw the ESV version of verse 5, and it, and it said something like this. Um, Let this mind be in you uh, that you have from Christ Jesus. Now, that, that's a terrible translation. If you have an ESV, you can look that up and get me, get me on the right, right path there. But it, it's something to that effect. Well, he said, I have a big problem with this. I want you to help me with this. Let's look up the Greek. And so we all three got together. We got in my office. We got out a bunch of books and looked on the Internet. And we, we unpacked all the Greek. And there is no way possible that that could be the correct uh, interpretation. Even the NIV gets it right. Uh, so just a warning to you. Always be careful about what translation you're using you know, make sure you look at, if, if something doesn't sound right, look at other ones. Um, I would encourage you to even look it up on the Internet. Now you can go to those verses, go to Blue Letter Bible, 
and you can click on it and see that Greek and what those words actually mean. But that would completely change the meaning of this whole passage. So you have to be really careful. Because this, that verse 5 is the meaning of everything that Paul is saying. He's saying that the mind in you, what your mindset should be, is the same mindset that Christ had. That's what he's trying to say. And see, they took that away. They took that away. But that's really what the text is telling us. So he says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. It sounds like those are... Like it could go either way. That's not what he means. Um, he's just saying these things are true. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. That's very similar to our text, right? One accord, one mind. If you want to have that type of unity, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. What does that mean? That means if you're just picking a fight to pick a fight, that's strife. That's the very definition of what he means there by strife. If you just enjoy the argument and enjoy the fight and you're picking fights just on purpose, to, for, that's strife. Vainglory, I think that one's self-explanatory, right? If you're doing it to exalt yourself and see I'm the smartest guy in the room and, boy, I'm putting all of you in your place, that would be vainglory. Those are the kinds of mindsets that we cannot have and to, to fulfill what Paul wants us to have, which is unity. But instead, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves that one's not hard to unpack so i'm not going to spend a lot of time on that i think everybody in here understands that right how different would your life be if you esteemed others better than yourself and that's extremely hard in our culture specifically now listen i'm a patriot i love the united states i love our capitalistic system i'm a capitalist i, I believe in democracy i believe uh, in our republic all of those things i believe in i think that's all good. but the, but the the fact remains that in our culture in the United States, because of some of those things, it's really kind of about get all you can, you know, you, self-determination, uh, and, and in the right framework, that's okay. But taken to the extreme, it's unbiblical. We're not to be all about ourselves and get all we can while we can. That's not what a Christian does. And so if you want to have unity and you have a bunch of people that are in the same place that are all about themselves... It's not going to happen. Paul says you're not going to have unity when everybody in the place is all about themselves. You have to set that aside. You have to say in lowliness of mind, you have to, to have humility of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's a really interesting phrase. Look not to your own things, but on the things of others. Does that mean that you get in everybody's business? <laughs> you know, some people would love to interpret that verse that way. Well, he told me I should be all about your things and not just about my things, right? No, that's not what he means there. This is what he means. He means that you're caring for others. You're not just about caring for you and yours, but when you see other people struggling, you reach out to help and you, you go and, and help. I saw a, a real life example of this recently that was just amazing. Um, we have a teacher at our school who he's just had the worst, whatever you want to call it, luck, providence, whatever you want to call it, with vehicles in the past year. It's just, I mean, it's an amazing story. It's like all of this couldn't happen to one person. He, he's not, he doesn't have much money, and so he's driving a car that he had just bought. Somebody hits him. They don't have insurance. His insurance says we'll pay, but he's upside down on the car, so he owes $9,000 on the vehicle the insurance paid him he still owes nine thousand dollars well he's what what i do 
you know, I don't have money to go out and buy something else. I'm still having to pay this off, and what am I going to do? And, and so then he, you know, he's going, and he's going to try to find something else. Well, then he finds something else to drive, and it believe, this is 100% true story. He pulls up at a stop sign. It catches on fire. The guy across the stop sign from him gets out of the car and waving at him. He's like, what? And he gets out, and his car's on fire, and it literally burns up right there on the street. So this guy's really in a bad shape, and, and he's, he's one of the teachers at our school. So I was just mentioning it to our board. I said, look, we've got this situation going on, and, and you know we're going to try to help him out as much as we can. Other people are letting him borrow cars and stuff. I had somebody come up to me the next day and say, I want to take care of his entire debt. How would I do it? And they, they paid the whole debt for that man all at once. You talking about looking on the things of others? That is what he means by looking on the things of others. We help one another. We look out for one another. And, and what I admired so much about it, he said, I want to do it in a way where nobody knows who did it. I want me and you to know, and that's it. That's somebody who's not doing it out of vainglory, and they're, doing, they're looking on the things of others rather than on just their own things. So that, that's just a, a very practical example of exactly what Paul is talking about here when he says, don't look only on your own things, but every man also on the things of of others and then he gets to the pinnacle in verse 5 let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus so what does that mean well Christ and he explains this as he goes on through the passage what was the mind of Christ Christ was one with the father he was in heaven they were in perfect unity contrary to some people's belief he didn't need fellowship with man they had perfect fellowship in the Trinity. He had no need of mankind whatsoever. And yet he was willing to humble himself and come down to this earth and become a man. Just that, even if nothing else happened, just that is one of the greatest examples of humility that there's ever been. But it doesn't stop there. See, and, and sometimes we forget that. When he, as it's kind of described, as he almost took off a, a robe... And, and made himself human, that, that is just, um, you talking about humbling yourself, going from a high level to a low level, from being divine and being God, the God, the creator of the whole universe, there was nothing made that was, not, that was made without Jesus Christ. He, he was there at creation. He was there in, from our understanding, what we would call eternity past, that he entered into time and took on a human body is one of the most humbling things that's ever happened. But it didn't stop there, like I said. Then he lived a human life. He was subject to all the things that we're subject to, and yet he lived perfect, perfectly, both actively and passively obedient to his Father. And then he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. That's what this passage tells us. He says if Christ has that kind of mindset and that kind of humility, can you get over your little opinion? about what your brother and the church and you disagree about? Can you get past that? And can you treat one another? Can you receive one another? Go back to our text now. Um, in that context, go back to our text. When he says, can you receive these people, that kind of sets it in a little bit different light, doesn't it? When we, when we compare it to what Christ did for us in him humbling himself and being obedient even to the death of the cross, that changes completely what we believe about Romans 15 and verse 7. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, when we humble ourselves, when Christ humbled himself, 
What does the Bible say about those who humble themselves? What's going to happen at some point? It's not, a, it's not an empty thing that he asks us to do. I think this is really important for us to remember when we talk about humbling ourselves and putting others before ourselves. What happened to Christ when he humbled himself? Therefore, he is highly exalted. He's going to be exalted. His name is above every name. There's going to be a point, what, what Philippians 2 teaches us, there's going to be a point. Christ humbled himself when he came to earth the first time. Is he doing that again? No. no. Never again. When he comes the second time, his name is highly exalted. The worst characters of evil in the entire world that you can think of. I go to Hitler immediately. I don't know, cause I guess because I studied a lot of World War II in my history classes, but that's the guy that sticks out in my mind. Hitler is going to walk up, and he's going to bend the knee, and he's going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the truth. He's going to have to say it. His name is going to be highly exalted. And so the Bible teaches us that same principle. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and in due time, what? You will be exalted. You will be exalted. So it's through humility. Those who want to be first in the kingdom of God, what? Are last. They're the first in the kingdom of God. So with that, we, we, we compare these two passages, and that's why he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in our text, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. And then we'll go back to close with this. Paul reminds us three times in that passage, what, why, why is unity important? Why is it important that we humble ourselves? Why is it important that we do all of these things? It's all for the glory of God. It's not so our church can brag and say we've got good unity, you know, brag about how humble we are, right? That doesn't make sense. It's for the glory of God. We, we do what we do to bring God glory. And when we're humble and, and we're looking on the things of other, not just on our own things, and we have true Christian unity, we're speaking with one mind and one voice, that brings glory to God. That's where God gets glory. Hope those things have been a blessing to you this morning. Do you want to have a hymn?